So today, um, we are in our second uh, sermon in our series, We Are, right? We Are. And uh, We Are Family is the title of, of this week's sermon. We Are Family. And our, our, our text today is John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 13. Um, and we're, uh, in, this, in this sermon series, we're exploring the different analogies of Scripture that describe uh, the church generally. So what, it, what does it mean to be part of the church? Last week, uh, we talked about the body, how um, each of us, if we are in Christ, we are in the body of Christ. That, that Jesus could say, as truly uh, as he could say about his physical flesh, like, this is my body. He can look at you, Christian, who has faith and who has trusted in Jesus, and he could say, you are my body. And so we, we, we looked at how that applies to the church generally, but then specifically how it applies to this local manifestation of the body of Christ. How, how it applies to, to you and to me and to, to all of us here what it means for our gifts, what it means for how we treat each other, what it means for how we interact with one another, and, and, and what we owe each other as a result. What does it mean to be a member of the church universal and a member of Remedy specifically? That's, we're trying to answer that question with this series. And so last week we looked at the body. Today we are looking at family. And we're, we're starting in John, but we'll, we'll be in many different places so here at Remedy, we stand for the reading of God's word. So if you would uh, please stand with me as we read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. So, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat, and let's pray. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts, illuminating uh, your truth to us. Lord, we, uh, we beg you to speak. We beg you to be uh, active and to work in us and to make us uh, more like Jesus. We, we ask you to reveal sin in our hearts, that you would show and hold up uh, the mirror of your law, and that we would see the ugly parts of us because of the, the, the flesh that is at work. And that through the power of your spirit, we would put to death those things. And that we would uh, become more like Jesus, doing as he did and uh, doing as he commanded. We also pray that you would encourage us with the truth of your gospel. That the good news would empower us and fill us. And, and enable us to live the life that we want to live, to live the life that honors you, to live the life that in obedience proclaims your glories to the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, the, the very first point of the sermon is the gospel. And the gospel is that you are the family of God. So if, if you're a note taker, that's point one. The gospel. You are the family of of God. Now, John's gospel starts in a very odd place in a sermon about family. Um, it's, I think it's weird anyway. But when you think about it, if you're going to say something about the family, about what it means to be uh, in, in a family, you should probably start by saying something about the members of that family. 
And, and John, in his gospel, he starts out with the most important member of the family. He talks about God. He talks about Jesus. Uh, in the beginning, uh, he begins by proclaiming huge truths, big, beautiful truths about Jesus, about who he is. Jesus is the word. We see that in verse 1. He is the creator. That's in verse 3. Jesus is the life in verse 4. He is the light of men in verse 4. He is the light that shines in darkness in verse 5. And he is the light that darkness cannot overcome. That's in verse 5 as well. And in calling Jesus these things in the way that he does, John is declaring to us something about Jesus' deity. Jesus is complete in Godhead. He is truly God, one in substance, so he's made of the same stuff as God uh, with the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is begotten, not made, with the glory equal to the Father and Spirit and a majesty co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. But what I'm uh, doing there is just reading parts of what's called the, the definition of Chalcedon, which is an early church creed that helped help the church establish what we believe about who Jesus is. Jesus is the king who rules over the creation he spoke into existence. Jesus is life the creator of life and the sustainer of life. He is the light that makes all life possible, just like our sun, right? Without our sun, life on this, this ball of dust in this vast expanse of, of space is, is, is gone. It's, it's nothing. He is light inextinguishable and unconquerable, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. This is Jesus and this truth is essential to everything that we have to say today. It grounds everything we're going to look at. And if none of this is true about Jesus, then none of what we hear today matters. But it is true. This is who Jesus is. And John continues his introduction by telling us that this light, our Messiah, the Savior of the world, was testified to by the prophets, of whom John the Baptist is said to be the greatest. That's what uh, Jesus calls John the Baptist. The prophets of old were the ones who cried out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord to prepare uh, the people for his appearing. Now, the prophets, uh, what they did is, is they, they held Israel to account for how they broke God's law. The, the prophets were like God's lawyers, and they would uh, litigate God's case against his wayward people. They would say, you have broken God's commands. You have done X, Y, and Z. That breaks God's commands. You, you have broken his covenant. Repent, repent, repent. And as, as lawyers, the, the, the point of their lawyering, uh, they wanted the Jews and all the world to repent of their law-breaking so that they'd be ready for the advent of the Messiah. They wanted the world to be ready for when Jesus came. They wanted the world to receive their coming king. Then uh, John continues in verse 9 that their king was coming, right? He was coming. The light that the ancients from Abraham, uh, from, or sorry, from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David and all the other prophets foretold came and he inhabited, he, he dwelt, he tabernacled, as, as John says later in chapter 1, among us. Jesus is the light. He's, he's also complete in manhood. He's truly man and of the same substance, the, made of the same stuff as us, like us in all respects except for sin. And the great irony of the incarnation is that the world made through him did not know him. That the creator of the universe become, became like a creation and was rejected by them. The light who in the flesh descended from David, from Abraham, from Adam, came to his own, the Jews, and they did not receive him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but. It is always important to, to follow these, uh, these contrasting conjunctions. That's what but is, right? Like, I went to the store, but I forgot something that I really, right? That's a contrasting conjunction. Uh, but there, there is some weight I want us to feel in the phrase, his own people did not receive him. Because the irony is, it's heartbreaking. His own people, 
his own community, his own family in the flesh did not receive him. The reconcile, the reconciler was rejected. The sustainer of life was beaten and bruised. He was crushed and he was crucified. The blessed was crowned with the thorns that served as a sign of the curse. The life of the world passed into the place of the dead. As he cried out, it is finished and gave up his spirit. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The light that was shut up in the darkness. uh, The light was shut up in the darkness of the earth for three days. And he was sealed in blackness and shrouded with cloth. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But the darkness could not overcome him. The grave could not hold him in its power. And death could have no dominion over him. For the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus rose again from the grave victorious. Never to be overcome by darkness. And his resurrection declared and declares to the world according to the spirit of holiness that Jesus is the son of God. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But the risen king of the universe has decreed something that defies expectations and demands our attention. He has commanded something from on high that is simply too good to be true. But it is. He has promised something that sends the hearts of his elect a fluttering and their minds a racing and their lips a singing. This is what he has promised, that all, all, not some, not a few, not just the rich or just the poor, Not just the Jews or just the Greeks, not just the slaves or the free, but all who would receive him, who would believe in his name, would receive something so unbelievably precious and so breathtakingly glorious that it would make all that he had to endure resound to the praise of his name. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but... It is because of this gift, this, this but that Jesus has given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus all knees shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what is this gift? What is this mystery of ages past? The mysteries into which the angels long to look that has now been revealed to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit and made known to us in their testimony in the Scriptures. What is coming after this but? The mystery is this, that Jesus has given the right to become a child of God to all who receive him and believe in his name. The mystery now revealed is that Jesus has made a way for you to be called child of God. Part of the family. Member of the household of God. All you need to do is to receive Jesus. All you have to do is believe in his name. And if you do, you are in Christ. You are family You are born, not in the natural way that children are born, in blood, but uh, by the flesh and according to the will of a human parent. But instead, you are born according to the will of God, spiritually. And you are brought into the family. You are a child of God. The Jesus of John 1, 1 through 5. The word, the creator, the life, the light of men, the light that shines in the darkness, the light that darkness can overcome. He is your God and Father. And you are born of Him. You are in the family of God. To be in the family is the end for which you were created. To know God as Father is the reason for our creation. 
To be known by God as child is the essence of what it means to be fully human. And in addition to that, there are also unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable benefits that come from being declared a part of God's family. They're amazing benefits. And there are seven that we're just, just going to look at in Romans 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Romans 8. So the family of God, what is it? What other benefits, other than, you know, I don't know, being what we were created to be, can we have by being called a member of the, the family of God? Verse 12 of Romans chapter 8 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So contained in this, in this, uh, se- this is a, a section in, in uh, Romans chapter 8 where he's, he's kind of like laid out this huge, um, huge narrative arc where uh, all have sinned, um, Christ is made away, and now uh, Romans 8 is just like, uh, I don't know, Paul is just having a heyday with like all the cool things that are happening uh, as a result. And this is a section where we'll see he talks about uh, the Spirit crying, Abba, Father. Um, and so this whole section is, a, I, I think, about... Um, what it means to be part of the family. And so the first benefit that we see is that, um, is in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This, the spirit, by the spirit, we can execute this body of death that is our flesh. So that's the, the first um, benefit, that by the spirit, we can execute this body of death that is our flesh. While we live on this earth, we will fight with sin. We will. Um, there will be days that are good, and there will be days that are not so good. And as, as we fight, we may run across, we may run across deeply entrenched behaviors or systems of thought in our own lives that we hate and despise, but we feel like we just can't defeat The gospel declares, and your membership in the family of God does in fact, though, empower you to put to death that sin. Now, this doesn't mean that it will be easy or that it will be pleasant, uh, but it does mean that it's possible. And you'll have to step out in faith. You'll have to work against the ingrained patterns of thinking and believing. But progressive freedom in Christ is possible. That's the, the first promise uh, that we see in, in Romans 8, verse 13. Uh, membership in the family of God means you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. The, the next promise is in the, the next verse, in verse 14, and it's that we are led by the Spirit. For you all uh, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You are not left all to your own. You don't have to figure out things by yourself. You don't have to fret and worry and be filled with anxiety that you're not living an optimized life or that you've totally messed everything up. The Spirit is leading you and guiding you. To be sure, it is, it's definitely good to think through things, right, and to seek wisdom and to pray and to spend time seeking God's face. But it is okay for you to act, It is okay for you to make a decision. It is okay to step out in faith believing that God is leading you. Because the Lord of the universe is in fact leading you. And so being, uh, uh, the second promise is that being a part of the family of God means that the spirit of God is leading you. The, The third promise is in verse 15. We no longer have anything to fear for uh, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have been brought into the household of God. And as a result, you have all the security you will ever need. People may abandon you. Um, your, your, even your physical family, right, um, may leave. They may reject you. 
But in the family of Christ, you have all that you need. Nothing will be able to snatch you from that family. Nothing can break the ties that bind you to Christ. Nothing will move you out of his favor or end your membership in that family. Nothing. Being in God's family means that you have nothing to fear. The the next promise is a continuation of that verse. And it's that we have an intimate relationship with God. But you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We can now go to the light of the world and look him square in the face without fear of destruction, without the shame of our sins, without the condemnation of our past. And we can call him Papa. We can claim him as our creator and he will embrace us as his own. Being part of the family means that you have intimate access to the creator. And more than that, we have assurance of this intimate relationship. We have assurance of it. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Being a child of God can seem too good to be true. And as, our, as we live our lives still present in the flesh, going back to that, that first idea uh, of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, but we still pr- present in the flesh and still doing things we wish we would not do. I guarantee you, everyone in this room did something this week that they wish they, could not, they would not do. And we can begin to live in those patterns that bring us back to a place of shame and condemnation and fear of destruction. But the Spirit, through our fellowship with each other and the inner testimony he produces in us through faith, constantly, consistently, persistently bears witness that we are children of God. We are children of God. So being part of the family means that we have a father who is there and who constantly assures us of his presence and positive intention toward us. God is always for us because he's given us Jesus. Six is that we have an inheritance. Verse 17, and and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have a gift that we receive from God our Father. We have a gift. It's an inheritance. It's, it's something that we enter into. As Psalm 16, 6 says, it's a beautiful inheritance. It's beautiful. And it is this. It is eternal life with Jesus as our light and sun. He's the only light we'll need for all of eternity. And he will rule eternally. And he will receive from his creation the praise due his name. And we get to be a part of that. We get to sing his praise for all of eternity, never stained by our sin, never stained by uh, our, our flesh, but for all of eternity, we will sing his praise and we will, we will know him. And so membership in the family of God means we inherit God. We inherit knowing him and praising him and loving him for all of eternity. And number seven is that we have fellowship with Christ. Verse, uh, was it verse uh, 17 continues, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But this fellowship uh, that we have, uh, that future inheritance, isn't just in the future, it is also now. In Philippians, Paul described the fellowship in, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 in this way. This is Philippians 3, 7 through 10. Uh, But whatever things were gained to me, whatever things were gained, whatever things I benefited from, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death 
in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus described it this way. Then Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If we heed the call of Jesus, if we, if we call upon his name, if, if we trust in him, we have fellowship with him now. If we give up the life of the flesh that we live today, we will find the life and light of the world waiting to welcome us in. And we have it all now. We have it all now. These are promises that God, these seven things, right, are promises that God has made to us. And this is the gospel. It is the good news proclaimed to the poor. This is the liberty that is proclaimed to the captives. This is how our blind eyes have their sight restored. It sets our oppressed hearts at liberty and brings us into the favor of the Lord. Do you believe this gospel? Have you trusted that all Jesus did, his humble incarnation, his perfect life of love, his sufficient sufferings, his cursed crucifixion, his righteous resurrection, his glorious ascension, all that he did, do you believe that he did it for you? He did so that he may look upon you and say, beloved child, beloved child, and that you might look upon his face and cry, Abba, Father, have you received him? Have you believed in his name? Have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Do so today. Do so right now. He will receive you into his family and all the promise of the gospel are yours. So this is the gospel and it is of first importance. Jesus has made a way for you to enter into a relationship with him. And if you have received him and believed in his name, you are a child of God. Your relationship with him is primary. But think for a second about who else you've joined yourself to. So we've been focusing exclusively on we're entering a family and we have a father. Who's our father? And we've been talking about Jesus. But like with any other family, right? God is our father. uh, The church is our mother. And then the rest of the people who call upon the name of the Lord become our sisters and our brothers. And so now we're we're, uh, going to the second part of the sermon here where we talk about the law. So the point two is the law. Relationships in the family of God. The law. Relationships in the family of God. You've been brought into God's family, and God's family is very large indeed, right? Even if you just like look here, there's, I don't know how many people this is, but there's people, right? Um, and if you think about God's, God's family worldwide, it's millions upon millions upon millions of people. It's large. And like any family, there are rules that govern how the family operates, right? Uh, any family you go to, some of them have spoken rules, some of them have unspoken rules, but they all have rules, right? They all, you know, you, you listen to your parents. I think uh, every family, I think, usually has that rule. Uh, it gets applied differently in different, different places, but they all have rules. Um, there are expectations set by the head of the household, uh, the parents. Uh, and in this case, uh, in the family of God, they're set by Jesus Christ, The children, you and I, uh, are expected to follow these rules. Not because, listen, this is important, not because if we don't follow the rules, we get kicked out of the family. That's that's not why rules are set up in a family, right? They're not not set up to to exclude people. Um, So you don't get kicked out of the family of God. You can never get kicked out. Um. And what I, what I mean by that, what I mean by that um, is that people who have faith, 
who trust in Jesus, who, who come to him with their hearts, they can mess up immensely. They can do something so terrible that they, they're filled with shame and regret, right? They could do something unspeakably evil, um, which happens, right? Uh, but if that person repents of their sins and comes to Jesus, they will always be welcomed back. Always will they have a home. Always will they have a place in the family of God. Always. Always, 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 always. And so um, the rules are there, not because you get kicked out of the family, but the children are expected to follow these rules because they are part of the family. They are a part of it. That's why these expectations are upon them, because they are family, and so too with the family of God. There are ways you are expected to live in relationship to God and to others because you've become a part of his family. These expectations are not part of the gospel. They are not part of the gospel. They are uh, not part of the declaration that all who believe and receive Jesus have the right to become children of God. These expectations are a different category of scripture. They're just a different category. They're called law. The gospel declares to us the new reality of membership in the family of God. But the law orders our relationship in that family. The gospel brought us in. The gospel keeps us in. The gospel brings us to completion and motivates and empowers us. But the law shows us what love looks like and serves as a mirror that shows us where the flesh is at work in our lives. So if you, if you look at Romans eight thirteen. Um, that says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Um, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Uh, very succinctly, it means to live in contradiction to the law of God. So if uh, you, you're in Romans and you just flip over to Galatians real quick. We're in Galatians five nineteen through 21. I, I'll, I'll read it here. It says this, Galatians five nineteen through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This whole list... This whole list in Galatians 5 is not gospel. It is law, right? Uh, it's an expression of the law. It shouts to us, these things are not love. Do not do them. Do not let these things be part of the family of God. And it is important to remember that the law is primarily about love. The law is primarily about love. Matthew 22 uh, 36 through 40, uh, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So the, the Pharisees have come, they're, they're trying to test Jesus, and they ask him this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus' answer is pretty good. Like, he's a smart guy. Um, he says, he gives the right answer. He said to him, you shall love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we see here uh, that there's this uh, a second uh, important facet of the law. The law prohibits, right? We, we hear um, right, from Galatians 5, don't do these things. Don't be jealous. Don't be uh, full of strife. Don't uh, be, have fits of anger. Don't have rivalries, right? We hear don'ts. But then, uh, on the flip side, the law prohibits certain actions, and then it commands other, others. It commands love. Uh, so, for example, jealousy is prohibited. That's Galatians 5.20. And we are commanded that we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. So when, when we see somebody who receives something good, something that uh, they're excited about, we are commanded not to be jealous, and we're commanded to rejoice with them in receiving that good gift. 
And so to fall, to fail in either of these is to transgress the law of God. So it's, it's not just, uh, we, we're not law-keeping when we just stop being jealous. We are only law-keeping when we stop being jealous and we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Uh, uh, I hope I explained that in a clear way. And so I want to spend a second here talking about the law, what the law has to say about our relationship to other members in the family of God, and specifically other members in this manifestation of the family. Because I think the law has something to say about it. And I have, I have two areas we're going to address. Um, and we'll look uh, at a prohibition, right, what we need to stop doing, and then a positive command, what we should start or continue to do. So uh, these are the application, right? You're in the family of God. Christ is your father. How do we apply this to some of our, our daily life aside from uh, the things that we already talked about? How do we apply it in our relationships with one another? We are in a family. Um, the application number one is we need to build up the body. We need to build up the body. That's application number one. Or build up the family is another way to say it. So what is the prohibition? If we're, if we're to build, what are we prohibited from doing? Well, uh, th- it's this. The prohibition is don't let divisions arise and exist in Remedy Church. Don't let divisions arise and exist in Remedy Church. So the prohibition is listed in Galatians 5.20, which is uh, what we read earlier. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, and then these next few things, dissensions, divisions. And so what, uh, it's, it's difficult because uh, language is funny, but what I mean by division uh, is probably like a combination of the ideas uh, of dissension and division that, that Paul is, is listing uh, here in Galatians 5.20. Um, so the, uh, the scripture commands us not to divide ourselves into groups that identify us by a feature of our life circumstance or a position we hold on a second or third tier theological issue. Let me say that again. The scripture commands us not to divide ourselves into groups that identify us by a feature of our life circumstances. So if you think, um, uh, right, Paul says, hey, some are saying that I'm Paul and some are saying that I'm of Apollos, right? That's a circumstance of their life. That's like who they were baptized under. You should not divide yourself that way is what Paul is saying. Um, We are not to set ourselves into camps where there, uh, where there is an us against them, at least mentally, if not, if not physically, um, inside the household of God. There's, no, there's to be no us versus them. We are not to have dissensions and divisions here at Remedy. Now, uh, uh, it's important that I say what I don't mean, okay? So, um, I don't mean that there can't be a thing like a men's ministry, or men's, sorry, men's fellowship or women's ministry here at, here at Remedy. Both of which organize the family of God around a feature of their life circumstance, and both of which we have at Remedy, right? We have a men's fellowship and we have a women's ministry. And the reason that we're, we have them is because they don't exist to set men against women or women against men, right? But instead they exist to recognize ways in which women can help other women flourish. And, and specifically... Um, and men can help other men flourish, specifically. I also don't mean that there can't be mutual encouragement to gathering people together who share your similar experience and stories. Right? So uh, all moms with, with small kids, they can still meet together. Like, that's good. That's okay. That's fine. Um, uh, people who are older in life, they can still meet together and, and have coffee and, and hang out. That's, that's fine. It can be... Um, Cathartic, for example, to gather together families who have suffered the loss of a child so that they can share memories, that they, they can be honest in their struggles, they can speak truth to each other. That's, that's good, and I'm, I'm not saying we can't do that. I also don't mean that your specific life circumstance or your experience or your theological positions are unimportant. That's not what I'm saying at all either. Instead, now, what I am saying is that if a feature of your life circumstances, so uh, life circumstances is such things as your marital status, like are you married, are you divorced, are you single, 
or, or your sex? Are you male or are you female? Are, are you a member of a certain social class? Or uh, do you have a certain ethnic heritage? Or uh, do you have a certain type of job? Or are you out of a job? Or are you suffering? Or have you suffered in a specific way? Or uh, a feature of your theological system around a second or third order issue. So that would um, be like your biblically derived stance on uh, what you think male leadership in the church should look like. Or, or what your eschatology is. Or, or what your views on Sunday morning worship are. Or your views on the spiritual gifts. If any of these ever become a litmus test of exclusion or feelings of superiority or inferiority, then you have crossed a line and fallen into sin. Now, I, the, how does this look, right? How does this look? I want to be very clear. So I'll try to provide uh, two examples. Um, if I were ever to look out into the church and feel superior to another person because I'm married, because uh, I'm married um, and I have kids, um, or because I have children, or because I'm a pastor, or because I have one of the handsomest beards in all of history, right? (laughs) Gotta laugh, that's good. Um, Or because I hold a more accurate theological position than somebody that I'm arguing with, I would be in sin for feeling that way. I would be in sin. I I would be setting an us versus them mentality. And church, this should not be. Similarly, uh, say it's the opposite, right? Instead of feeling superior, if I were to look out into this church and feel bad about myself because I wasn't youngish, right? I'm not not super youngish. uh, Or because I didn't have the same freedom to hang out with others. Or because I didn't think the same things, like I didn't think about the same things other people were thinking about, like I wasn't on the cool trends, or like I wasn't aware of certain developments, or whatever. Or because I didn't have the right type of job, or because I didn't dress the right sort of way, then that would be sin too. Anything that we set up as a us versus them, whether we're superior or see ourselves as inferior, is sin. In both cases, I'd be putting myself into a group for the sake of exclusion, for creating a, an us versus them situation. And church, let this not be. So if, if any part of your life circumstances, such as your, your marital status, your sex, your social class, your ethnic heritage, your job, your suffering, or any of your feature of your theological system around a second or third order issue causes, uh, is creating for you an us versus them mentally in your thinking, speaking, or acting, you need to repent. You need to stop. This is the prohibition, no dissension and no divisions in the family of God. And so instead of creating the us versus them, what should we do? What should we do? So this is a positive command of scripture and it is seek to build up the members of Remedy Church. The positive command we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It's, it's hard to build somebody up when you think of them as a them, right? When you think of them as other, when you think of them as outside the camp, when you think of them as somebody uh, who you need to oppose and fight against. And so what does this look like? What does it look like to build up uh, one another up and encourage each other? This can look many different ways. It can mean sharing how a, how a circumstance of your life impacts how you view or experience the world with someone who doesn't have the same life circumstance. Right? So uh, both people can share and both people can listen and both can be enriched. You don't have to just hang out with people like you. It's good not to, right? It's good not to. You can have theological discussions where you lay out your biblical case for your views and someone with a different view can poke and prod at your views and not be convinced by your thinking. And you still love each other and you still benefit from the discussion and you both grow closer to Jesus as a result because you both recognize in each other that you want to hold the right view that you want to honor Jesus with your thinking, that you want to think what scripture thinks 
He just happened to be on different sides of an argument. It also means that you seek out people. Like, like you hunt them down. You go and you find them. Not just people who share our same theological systems or life circumstances. To encourage them as they struggle. To praise them when they do well. To support them when the weight of the world is heavy on them. Or to speak the truth of scripture over them and to them. It means being there with them when things get messy. When things get hard. When you do have a, a flare up or a spark in a conversation. And, and you can f- confront them on it with your words while supporting them with your presence. It means knowing them well enough to speak to them in a way that they can hear, loving them in a way that they can feel, and serving them in a way that they can receive. But it also means receiving words that are hard to hear. And, and it means feeling loved in ways you don't normally feel loved. And it, and it means receiving service you maybe didn't ask for or was, offended or was offered in a way that wasn't your expectation. And so what, what do I want you to do as your, uh, as your pastor? What, what do I want you to do uh, this week or this month? I want you to do this. I want you to find at least one person at Remedy to praise. Just one. Find one person to praise. Share with them. And, and hopefully it's somebody at Remedy that you don't normally praise. So like uh, if you have a good buddy who you're always praising because you, you like them a lot and they're pretty great. You can't do this with them. It's got to be somebody else. Find that person. Uh, give them a hug or a firm handshake. Firm handshake is good too. Uh, or a pat on the back. Uh, and tell them what you admire about them and love seeing in them. Affirm something good that you see from them. Can you do that? The answer is yes, right? Anybody can do that. But will you be obedient to God? And build your family members here at Remedy up. Next week, next month, find a time to do that. So that, that was number one. Uh, our first application, build up the body. Our application number two is resolve interpersonal conflicts. So that's number two, resolve interpersonal conflicts. Uh, so the, here's the command. Do not let personal relationships with anyone especially members of the family of God, get to the point where you are bitter, wrathful, angry, and clamor against and slander your siblings in Christ. So Ephesians 4.31 is the source of this prohibition. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So that's Ephesians 4.31. The scripture commands us not to let our offenses fester unaddressed to the point where we are living in bitterness and wrath and anger against a brother or sister in Christ. This level of evil in our hearts often leads to external manifestations of that evil in clamoring and in slandering others. You've been hurt, either truly or in, uh, maybe just in your own perception, uh, but at the level of your anger rises so that you are bitter towards that person. You want to see something bad happen to them. You get upset when that person has something go well, and you talk poorly about that person to others. We are not to have this type of thinking and acting here at Remedy. So, so again, there's things that I don't mean, right? First, I don't mean that you should minimize your hurts or wounds that others have afflicted upon you. That is not what you should do. That is wrong thinking. I also don't mean that there is never a reason to be angry. Uh, our wounds are real, and there are some things we should and ought to be righteously angry over. I'm also not saying that you can't share a conflict that arose here at Remedy or, or even somewhere else with, with uh, your pastors, with me or with FUD. Doing so is always good and right. And you should come to us for counsel if you need it. But you also don't need to bring it to our attention, especially if you're living out, uh, the, if you're living out what we're going to talk about in a second, which is how do you resolve conflict. You don't always need to bring it to your pastors, but it's totally fine if you, if you do. I also don't mean that you can't share a hurt with a trusted friend. 
I don't, I don't mean you can't do that. Sharing your experience is how some people are able to process their emotions. But I would just caution against seeking the counsel of many people when this is the case. Generally speaking, it would seem that a smaller number of people would be sufficient for sharing a hurt to help you process your experiences. Otherwise, in, in my judgment, uh, in most cases, this is not all, but just in most, uh, would be that you may no longer be seeking to process, but you may be uh, instead harboring resentment and engaging in slanderous discourse. So that's just a word of wisdom. Uh, if you need to process stuff, you should. But I would just encourage you to keep the group small. Uh, but if you find yourself sharing the same issue with person after person, and, and if you sense in your heart growing anger, even bitterness, towards someone who is a member of God's household along with you, right? They're, they're a fellow child of God. And if you are talking negatively about this person behind their back, you are in sin. You are in sin. And so how does this look? And so let me provide a, an example of how this might play out. And so let's say you're having a conversation with someone and they say something that hurts you. They might have done it on purpose or they might have just done it accidentally. But, but how would you respond? I know how I respond. I, I'm, I, I'm shocked and I don't say anything in the conversation. I just get shocked and, and like I just keep moving on. Um, I... Uh, in the moment, I don't say anything because I don't know what to say. But later on, because I, I think a lot about things, um, after the shock begins to mature, it matures into sadness. I get sad. Um, sadness that they didn't have regard for me. Or that they didn't understand me and wounded me. Or that they even, maybe they did it on purpose and they targeted me with a jab just to hurt me. Like, all these things happen. Yeah, like, it's, it, it happens. And so at this point of sadness, uh, you're just experiencing the grief of the wound. And that is 100% normal and right, and absolutely nothing wrong with experiencing grief. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good to, uh, to feel pain. Um, we often, uh, when we start to numb our pain, that's often when bad things begin to enter into our life. Just as a FYI. Um, don't do that. Don't numb your pain. Um, now in that moment, you can turn the sadness over to God and begin a healthy process of mourning where we offer our hurt to the Lord and extend forgiveness to the person who offended and harmed us and maybe even approach them, uh, in a conversation with the person who hurt us, just so that you can tell them what's going on, how, how they affected you, how they harmed you, uh, how they said, like, uh, touched a, a sore spot in your soul. Or we can get into a cycle of bitterness, anger, and wrath. And we'll get to the point where we want them to pay for the wound. And we're more willing to help settle the account by telling as many people who are here, or by harboring resentment in our heart, or having a jealousy and wanting to see them fall and stumble um, because of the, the wound that they have done to us. Or if you're more quiet, all of this will just be internal judgments, right? You'll just feel it in your heart. You won't, you won't lash out, um, but you will still be in sin. And none of this should be so any, if any part of you likes to hold on to your hurts, if, if you, uh, in you there is any, if for you there is anyone in this family of God that you feel bitterness, anger, or wrath toward, if there is anyone you've clamored against or slandered, you need to repent. You need to repent. This is a prohibition that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. So what should we do instead? So uh, Hebrews 10.24 says, Stir up the members of remedy to love and good, good works. That's not what Hebrews says, but that's my interpretation. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. But our command is to stir up the members of remedy to love and good works. What does this look like? Now, this is a, a very all-encompassing command. 
There, like so many things are included in this. It's, it's mind-boggling. But in this context, I think this is how we obey. We talk to the person who hurt us. We talk to them. Imagine for a second, back to the conversation, uh, right, that happened theoretically up, you know, a few minutes ago, um, where you're talking to someone in the family who says something that hurts you. They are a member of God's family. A baptized believer who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved, but they hurt you. You didn't know what to say in the moment, but you started thinking about it, just like I do. And, uh, you're at the point of sadness. You're sad. What do you do? How should you think about the person? The first thing that you should do is you should think of them as a child of God. You should think of them as somebody just like you. And as a child of God, I guarantee you, they don't want to live a life that hurts other people. They don't. Like that's not their aim. That's not their objective. That's not their goal. So sharing with them how they hurt you can help them live in such a way that they stop hurting other people. And even if in this instance they did hurt you on purpose, you're confronting them with their sin is literally the most loving thing you could do and is commanded by scripture. Look at Matthew 18, 15. Now, uh, I'm not going to uh, say that this is not really hard. Uh, most people like run away from conflict like it's the plague, right? That their armpits are going to swell up and turn black and then they'll die, right? That's what the plague is. Um, and you want to run away from that. You don't want to get that. Um, it's a little better now that we have like penicillin, but it's still, it's still bad. Um, but it's mostly bad because we aren't very experienced in this practice. It's mostly bad because we don't really do it. And so it feels so weird to do it. But if we want to be stirring up each other to love and good works, we have to be in communication with one another. We have to. You can't, you can't help, you can't stir somebody up who you never talk to, right? You can't encourage someone that you never spend time with. We have to be able to share with someone, uh, the, the person who might have hurt us, uh, you have to be able to share that hurt with them. You have to be able to explain it to them. You have to be able to talk it to them. You have to be able to show it to them. And we have to be able to share how someone might have hurt us. We also have to be gracious enough to know that when a fellow member of God's family approaches us with something we did wrong, it it doesn't mean that we're kicked out of the family or that this sibling of ours doesn't like us. It just means that we made a mistake and that we need to grow and, and that we need to be brought into full maturity in Christ. And in fact, um, the very opposite ought to be true, that, that the person who's coming to us is showing us immense love for the people for whom Christ died. They, if someone comes to correct you, they are doing so out of love because they, they feel, right, if, if they are a member uh, of, of uh, Christ's family, they, they look at you and they say, I love you and I want you to live rightly. We should have great affection and fondness for the children of our Abba. And hearing them call out his name should endear us to each other. We should be endeared to each other. And so all of us have blind spots. All of us have areas where we are prone to be lazy or apathetic. All of us have areas where we're stiff-necked and stubborn. All of us have hurt someone in the family of God. And all of us have been hurt by someone in the family of God church. Let's make a commitment to see each other as siblings in God's family, brothers and sisters, part of the same household. Let's commit to believing the best in each other and seeking out what is best for each other. Let's commit to have those difficult and awkward conversations where we share our pain and confront our siblings. And so what, what do I want you to do this week or month? There are two things, two things. The other one only had one. Um, but some, maybe some of you won't have to do the first. The, the first is this. If uh, you have something against someone at Remedy, if someone at Remedy has hurt or harmed you, or you recognize that you have hurt or harmed somebody at Remedy, you need to start the process of repairing that relationship. You need to, to step out in love 
and bring repair, to bring unity. If you need help, reach out to me or FUD. We can help. Uh, your community group leader can help. Your trusted friend can help. But let's clear up any accounts and remove all bitterness and slander from our midst. The, the second, that's only for people who have a situation like that. This next one's for everybody. I want you to share with someone a way you want to love better or do good works you feel called to. So like, like you, go to someone and, and share with them how you want to love better or how you, uh, good works that you want to do. And the person that you share with, that's who has responsibility. That person, what I want you to do is I want you to spend time thinking through how you can help this person grow in love and to do good work. Actually take time to consider for a person other than yourself how they might grow in that love or how they may grow in doing that good work and be ready to help out as they need. Now, I want to close our time where we began with the message of the gospel, and we'll just be reading it again straight from John. So John 1, 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, it is such a blessing to call you Father. It is a great joy uh, to be a member of your family, to have been invited in, to have at once been uh, your enemy when still in my sins. But now, through faith, through the work of Jesus, I have been brought near. I have been given a place to call home. I have been given siblings and a family that is truer than any family I could have on this earth. You will be to me a father who will never abandon me. You will be to me all that I need. We thank you for all that Jesus has done on our behalf. We thank you for the way that he paved and the way that he made to enable that relationship. And Father, we recognize uh, that we are also brought into relationship with each other. That as, as we draw closer to you, there are siblings who have joined us uh, in the family. And your law requires things of us. Your law uh, commands us both not to do things and to do things. And Lord, we confess that we have not obeyed your commands. But as your children, we receive your discipline. We receive uh, your grace that you would correct us and that you would give us your law to show us the way that we should live. And as your children, we submit our wills to yours. We don't want to give you any backtalk, but instead we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and for your kingdom to come. And so, Lord, establish your rule and your reign in our lives. Let your rules and your statutes be pleasant to us. Let them appear beautiful. The, the law of the Lord revives the soul. And so, Lord, revive our soul with your word. Help us to, to obey and to do what is right. Uh, be patient with us as we struggle and fumble. Help us to lean on the, on the uh, many promises that you have given to us. Let us stand secure 
in our sonship and daughtership in Christ so that we are empowered and we are enabled to weather the storm, to, to do the hard thing, to, to be so uh, fully uh, resting in the truth of what you have done that when, uh, when we're faced with, with the dilemma of do I b- believe that I am a full-fledged uh, child of God, fully secure, fully accepted, fully beloved, will I risk potential rejection and speak? Will, will, I, will I risk a relationship to do what is right? Will I risk my own comfort and my own, uh, my own desire to hold on to hurts, to feel justified and, and, and just? Or will I extend grace uh, and forgiveness and honor and, and praise your name for the grace that you have given and extended to me? Holy Spirit, we, we beg you to do your work in our hearts, that you would make us a place where we build each other up in love and, and where we spur each other on to love and good deeds. That that would mark who this local body uh, of believers are. And Lord, I thank you for all the ways that it does. I thank you for all the ways that, that we encourage one another and love each other and, and serve each other and build each other up. But Lord, I also pray that it would increase and that in all things would resound to the, to the glory and praise of your name. Amen.